welcome to the Intriguing Beings podcast with me, Rue Chater. Over the last 20 years, I've been lucky enough to meet and interview a host of interesting people. This summer, I decided to record some of these conversations for a new podcast. Episode 6 with Pete Cabrina. I was very privileged to chat to Pete at the Virgin Kite Surfing Armada earlier this year. Pete is one of Hawaii's heroes, a pioneer of the water sports out there. He had a glittering windsurfing career in the 80s and was part of the early group of riders who toe-surfed the monstrous waves at Jaws. Pete has a huge passion for trying new things on the water and more recently became totally addicted to foil surfing. He picked up kiteboarding long ago, before it was even really a sport, and he's been the driving force behind one of the world's biggest kiteboarding brands, Cabrina. We also talk about his love of art and travelling, and there are some great stories from the very early days of his windsurfing career. I learned a lot about Pete during this conversation, and I hope you do too. We recorded this one in the Ford Transit Custom Van at the Virgin Kite Surfing Armada, so look out for the odd person saying hello outside, seagulls on the roof, and a few cars driving past. Pete was also suffering from a bout of flu he'd picked up on his travels around Europe, so it's a huge credit to him for doing the interview when he was feeling so under the weather. As ever, if you're enjoying these podcasts, please feel free to give them a thumbs up, share them on social media, and help me spread the word. A five-star rating on iTunes wouldn't go amiss either. Okay, so I'm sat here very fortunately with a gentleman called Pete Cabrina. Uh, You might have heard of him. Uh, If you're a kite surfer, you've definitely heard of him. And if you surf, you've probably heard of him as well. Um, He's one of the foremost watermen from the island of Maui. Many accolades to his name. And we thought it'd be nice to get together and have a conversation about how he got into... Uh, his passion for the ocean and how he's developed that into a very formidable career and indeed a huge lifestyle. Um, So Pete, thanks for sitting down with me today. We're just sat in the van again at the Armada, so we're going to sit here until it gets too hot. So I guess the first kind of question is, I sort of know you through kite surfing and, you know, I've met you a couple of times and I'm very aware of all your accolades and things, but how did you get into being on Maui, getting into the surf, becoming part of the ocean? I mean, it all happened pretty naturally and um, sort of organically, I guess. I mean, I I was born in Hawaii, and um, we lived not far from the beach when I was a a very small kid. And just going to the beach every day was just a a normal thing. And so we're goofing around in the waves. Next thing you know, your dad's pushing you into waves on a surfboard. Yeah. And surfing just happened um, at a pretty young age. I think uh, this year um, marks maybe 50 years I've been surfing. Wow. I know. It's really funny to even <laughs> think that. Um, That's crazy. Yeah. And well, at it, least it, you're good at it. If you've been doing it for 50 yeah. years and you're rubbish, then that would be terrible. So that's a yeah. bonus. But the, the, I guess the cool thing about surfing is you, you never really master it. There's always something there yeah. for you. And lately especially with uh, foil boarding and everything. It's just, I feel like a kid again. I mean, you're doing something that you've done for 50 years and um, suddenly you're doing it again and you're looking at two to three foot waves and you're like, you yeah, know, how am, I gonna, how am I going to navigate this, you know? And it's it's just awesome fun. I was going to get onto the, the foiling a little bit later, but I guess as we've brought it up, let's chat about it now because it's um, kind of very poignant. It's this massive movement and if people are listening to this and they don't understand what we're going to be talking about, it's essentially attaching a hydrofoil wing to the bottom of a surfboard and then paddling into waves 
which I tried in Mauritius on a paddleboard, and it was literally the most terrifying thing I've ever done. So how did it sort of start off in Maui? How did it come about, and how did you get into it? Yeah, I mean, if we go way back to the beginning of it all, it was, um, yeah, I was there on the, the very first day when um, uh, my friend Brett Lickle brought a uh, air chair, which okay. is a, um, a, a sit-down, looks like a water ski with a seat on it and yep. a hydrofoil underneath it. And we were towing around behind a, um, a jet ski with it, and just purely for laughs. Yeah. And we're everybody got a try on it, and you know, we're just getting bucked all over the place on the thing, and just having a good laugh. And then at the very end of the day, like right before we wrap things up, Laird was sitting on the thing, and he unbuckled his seatbelt and stood up on it. No and, way. And then the lights just went on. It was and like so. Oh. So Brett and Laird went back that night, and took a snowboard. They took the hydrofoil off the, the air chair yeah. and they cut a hole in the middle of the snowboard and they stuck it up in there. And then in order to mount it, they had to build this sort, sort of pyramid of wood to stabilize the, the <laughs> yeah. top of the, you know, the, 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 the mast. The mast of the foil, yeah. Yeah, and, and put on a pair of snowboard boots and, you know. And this was a long time ago, wasn't this it? Is, this is like Yeah, I think this was 1990, I want to say 96. Yeah. And you guys were towing into some pretty big waves. In yeah, Maui that was that right at the height of the whole, you know, tow-in, um, you know, movement. Um, what well, was still sort of on on its way up, I guess. Yeah. Um, we started that about '93. So yeah, a few years later we did this, and so yeah, so the foil thing has been around for a long time, and and from that day it progressed to surfboards with a hydrofoil, and. Um, snowboard boots yeah and so we're pretty committed yeah um, you're in you're yeah, not coming and, out <laughs> and and we're using it to tow into actually pretty big surf at the time yeah that, and that did was you ever not... take it out in jaws or yeah 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 i think i saw some photos from there it looked yeah. bonkers yeah i had some jaws <laughs> sessions on it but i mean listen i mean we were like channel sniffing like yeah. the whole time we yeah were, you know um but you could get these huge waves and get incredible speeds because the way the foils were back then, they were really made for high speed. Yeah. Whereas it's come full circle back to this, um, to where it is now, where everything has slowed itself down. The wings are made for high lift yeah. at low speeds and the masts are a lot shorter. So you can actually paddle in and stand up on a surfboard without any foot straps or anything yeah. and have the time of your life. I mean, it's really just amazing fun. Yeah, it looks pretty bonkers. I mean, it's certainly progressed a lot. And what's interesting, I guess, is you're, you were there all that time ago. How did it go from that transition of you guys just heading out and about, playing around with the snowboard boots, playing around with the snowboard and the surfboard to sort of where it is now? Because it almost seemed like it stopped for a bit. It almost seemed like you guys were doing it, and then it went away, and then it kind of resurged into where yeah, it is now. Yeah, I'll tell you what happened. Um, so, yeah, we we did the you know foil boarding toe-ins for a while yeah and it was pretty committed with the uh um the boots and everything and then um that made its way into kite surfing yeah and we used pretty much the same equipment the same yeah. board the same boots everything you just towed yourself around on a kite and same thing it was the the whole boot thing just made it a little bit kind of a lot of gear heavy yeah 
and, and quite sketchy and you're wiping out with snowboard boots on. Right, I right. Be pretty... and, and when I say committed, like you were committed to a stance. Yeah. Also. Yeah, so you couldn't change your feet. You couldn't change your feet. And um, so it just sort of like evaporated. Like it's sort of, sort of the idea of it, the trend of it just sort of evaporated except for like little small pockets. Okay. And it wasn't until um, Kai Lenny decided to start playing around with it again, first in stand-up paddleboarding, yeah. um, doing downwinders. Um, he he tried it one day and got some glides that just, again, it was a moment where light bulb the light on. bulbs came on and everybody's just like, oh my God. And especially for him, yeah, he just pursued it like vigorously with... Um, you know, smaller surfboards and, and everything. And it really re-sparked the interest for a lot of people, including myself. I yeah. mean, when I saw that, actually, I tell you, that got me interested. And then he had another video where he was in Fiji and he rode a wave, kicked out of the wave, pumped back out and got the second, and got the second wave. And wave I was wave like, again. Yeah, I saw that video. this it's looks amazing. like way too much fun. Yeah. And so... You know, obviously, we we have already been making um, the foils, foils for the kite surfers, so, so it was just pretty quick for us to just adapt. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, for we, you know, started making wings and yeah, and getting involved. Think of surfing um, or wanting to surf um, that don't even look like real waves. Yeah, um, some of them are perfect for foil boarding. I mean, so all you really need to do spots. is really paddle in and get to your feet, and then and then it sort of opens up this this. Um, you know, field that you can just pump from wave to wave and and surf the wave in a way that you you don't normally surf. Like yeah. I like to think of it as like a cross between um, longboarding and shortboarding, like where okay. the, these two things collide. Because, so you can kind of ride a longboard wave, but with the maneuverability of a shortboard and yeah, like you have the speed around. of a shortboard, and you, but you draw the lines of a longer board. You know, you're sort of picking like you're you're going way out to the the shoulder and then you're doing these big swooping turns back into the pocket and and uh and it's you know it's super graceful and and fluid and uh, you know all those kind of things that you want to attach to it yeah just because of the nature of the the, the being out of the water yeah you know there's not no chatter there's no um bump you're just gliding silence. yeah total silence and it's cruising. it's so weird to to watch sometimes because you know from from a visual standpoint when you see a guy ripping a wave, you're you're seeing like big sprays flying out the back of the wave. You see his track, you know, and those are all the things that sort of are inbred in your um, ingrained in your mind as to what you should be doing, as like what you and... should be seeing. And then you see this guy on a on a wave that the foil just cuts through the water, and it's almost like a like a zipper. It just closes yeah. right behind the foil and doesn't even leave a trace. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of magical. Yeah, it is really. And so from, if we go back a little bit to where we sort of started the conversation, you know, you, you were saying that you, you grew up in Hawaii, you got into surfing at a young age. When did surfing become more serious for you? When did it, you know, when did it start to become something that you're like, okay, I know you got into windsurfing, but, you know, what sort of stages did it go for you from sort of leaving school and stuff like that? Right. So um, when I was six, we moved um, pretty close to the beach, close enough that uh, my house was kind of like the sort of home base. Everybody would leave their surfboards at my house. Yeah. And uh, a lot of times we'd dawn patrol it before school. You know, we'd have a little surf in front of the house and uh, or after school. And so, you know, when I was, you know, under 10 even already, I was surfing like every day. 
and between 10 and 15, same thing. Surfing was my thing. Yeah. Just what you just did. Completely for fun. You yeah. Know? And then when I was 15, I learned how to windsurf. And that was a game changer for me because I lived on a windy side of the island. Yeah. And where the surf, the quality of surf wasn't great, but there was always wind. And there was something about it, even back then, like that was 1976 or, yeah, some sometime around then. Um, even back then, the boards were big, and but but there was something about you know combining the wind and the yep. surf and all that. Like it grabbed me so hard that that just became like my thing. Like was I was it. windsurfing every day, and I would just surf occasionally, and um, and then over the next ten years, that just developed into a, a full-on career for me. Yeah, because you're a professional windsurfer, right? Like yeah, day, like competing yeah. and doing events and. Kind of around that time that Robbie was doing his thing as well. So yeah, there was a lot of lot of luck with the the timing of it all for me. Yeah. Like I was just getting out of high school when um, the the professional windsurfing tour was just being developed, and at that point in time, I kind of had a sense of where I was on the world stage or the world you know uh, level. Yeah, and uh, you know I said, hey, you know I could. I could maybe do some damage here. Yeah. So yeah. So, you know, and, and, you know, Rob lived in my, um, in the Bay and, you know, I sailed with him a lot and I, that was the ultimate benchmark. So you're like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I I could see where I was, where he was, if he was the world's best, I was like, okay, I must be somewhere near there. And so, you know, let's, let's find out. See where it goes. And so I, you know, uh, decided to get on the tour right out right out of high school and um, pursue that for for ten years. Awesome. Yeah. And th- back then there was quite a bit of money involved in windsurfing, right? Because it was kind yeah. of this boom sport. So it was, I don't know. It felt like there was more money. You know, Peter Stevenson, all these sort of big sponsors, yeah. sponsored events. I don't know if that filtered to the riders or not, but from an outsider that was a windsurfer looking in and reading all the magazines, it was like Jim Beam sponsoring this, and you know, all this kind of people throwing money at this super cool new sport. So, did that filter down to you guys at the top level, or it did? It, it, it was it it was a really good time in the sport, and for a couple of reasons. One, it again timing. Like if you think about the early '80s um, in Europe especially and japan there this is like pre-snowboarding this is really sort of pre um i don't want to say pre-surfing because guys were surfing in europe yeah but windsurfing was at that that point in time kind of europe's surf sport yeah and um and so that represented for you know a a big part of your france and germany um to a large degree the um you know what summer was all about like yeah, that's it, it, it was it was a great marketing tool it was being used you know mainstream and so that translated into healthy sponsorship for the tour and and at the same time the sport itself was growing so the manufacturers were all yeah pretty healthy and, money and, and robust and they the manufacturers actually ran the tour for the first um handful of years yeah. uh, at the WSMA and it was it was pretty cool. In fact, I have to admit, it was very cool being a, a, a pro back then because all the manufacturer were tr- manufacturers were trying to outdo each other. Yeah. And so we're going to throw this much money. At yeah, money. they would. Oh, you know, they, this much. Yeah. You'd go to these events, and and I mean, let me give you an example of how it was. 
and, and you know, I don't want to come across as you know trying to sound. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I'll just I'll just tell you how it was. I mean, yeah. because it is quite different now. But so, for example, you know, with the Mistral team at that point in time, they had a team manager, and he organized um, uh, you know uh, car sponsors for us. So we had, I think, one year we had um, Mercedes, the next year we had Audi. And we would show up in for an event in Germany, for example, and we'd get to the airport and they'd hand us over the keys to our, our cars. Wow. Sometimes our cars with our names painted on the side of them. I mean, it no was way. pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. And um, then you drive to the event. They, they, they take your gear in a separate um, van. So you didn't even have to take your gear. No. For, like, you rock no. up at the airport, get given the keys to a car, and then all this stuff goes there. Um, yeah, and and mind you, at that time, we, you know, we had a ton of gear, like like literally between yeah, because the boards were huge, weren't they? And Twelve foot race boards, and of course, you needed two. Then you needed your slalom boards. You needed all the race sails, yeah, slalom sails, tons of kit, all your wave gear. Um, yeah, so you really had like a massive amount of stuff. So they were, they were a huge help in that way. And then you get to the event, and then they have these um, these uh, containers all set up in these these um, mobile homes and things and with heaters and sometimes um, they had like a medical team there for you in case you got injured we had um, with gastro we had a, a guy travel with us the whole year with a sewing machine and you could do modifications to your product to, wow. your, to your sale like as you're going yeah as you're going like if if you're finding that um, your, your sail, like the leech is a little too tight, you want to loosen it up, you know. He'll, the sail maker's there, he'll, he'll just do it right it. there. Or, of course, any repairs you need yep. were done. We had guys doing board repair. I mean, it was it was really a different time. Yeah. And, um, and it was cool. I mean, it really, I mean, for me, that was the point. I mean, it didn't, it didn't take very long at all. It was that point in time when I sort of made a pact with myself saying, you know, I want to be in this. Yeah. For, this is for the awesome. long run, you know, in some shape or form, you know, and uh, so I, I took it seriously, and I and I worked you know, hard at it. Yeah, this is this is what I was going to do. Yeah, and so you did ten years as a pro windsurfer. What did you do after that? Where was the journey taking you there? The, yeah, it's, yeah, that was interesting. Um, so, I I kind of sort of pulled out of the the um, professional side of things. I don't want to say sooner than I should have, but it was, you know, I still, I, f I felt like I had the skill. I just didn't really have the mindset. Like I became world champ, um, in what I was going after, which is wave performance. Yeah. And, um, and I stopped doing all the racing side of things at, at one point and I was just a, a wave guy. And, um, but then I was like, okay, so what am I going to do here? Am I going to just try to be multi? World champ, like you know, two-time world champ, three-time. What you know? Yes, yeah. and then where you go? <laughs> yeah, and and there were some really interesting things happening um, all around the sport. Like um, there was still all this sponsorship and um, and people wanting people like myself to go off and do you know promotional work for these these companies. And so I did some work for a German brand for um, a few years. Well, actually, it turned out to be about eight years after that. And so I had this kind of hybrid sort of professional career where I was doing a lot of promotional work. I was doing a lot of work for my um, industry sponsors. And um, I also 
became a little bit more involved in the, the marketing. Right. And so I was working with Gastra at the time and they're based in Hong Kong and not to um, say they weren't doing a great job, but it felt to me um, as somebody who was like right really in the sport that they were just a little bit disconnected from yeah. the market. Like they had these ad agencies in, in Hong Kong doing their work at the time. I think they had BBDO at, the, uh, at that time, which is, as you know, like one of the, the top ad agencies at, yeah, at the time. But their advertising was very slick and clean, and it just didn't really like touch the heart of what windsurfing was about. Yeah, and it was almost like they were. It, it could have been a car ad or something. Right. And so I made a pitch. I actually contracted a, an artist in in Maui to do some um, layouts, and I took them to to Gastro and I said, "Listen, this is what I want to do. This is the the direction I'd like to take it." you want to give me the account and I completely just winged it winged it yeah <laughs> and and uh, they're like okay let's do it so they went from world's top ad agency <laughs> to Pete Cabrina <laughs> based on some sketches that you'd had drawn up in Maui pretty much on a chance pretty much and, wow. and to make things more interesting is that I had a real interest in doing graphic design at the okay. time but I had no formal um, training yeah and so I went out and spent you're gonna laugh about this. <laughs> I bought um, an Apple computer. Yeah, this is 1991. An Apple computer, a printer, a you know uh, the monitor, and all, yeah, all the stuff. Yeah, all the bits to go with Just it. Just take a guess at what I spent on that. Oh, I have no idea. Back then, probably quite a lot of money. Back then, to do because like, it was a proper design tool. The Mac it, back then, you only had it if you were doing design. It's yeah. not like now where everyone has a Mac. But back it was. Then it was for design. True, but it was still at such infancy. But to get the setup that you needed to do this, it was $15,000. Whoa. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> but I was committed. I was like, I'm, I'm doing in. this. Yeah, I'm doing this. And so, you know, I bought the stuff and I just put my head down and I, I figured out how to become a graphic designer. Wow. And I was kind of moonlighting at the time you know i mean i was still really really engaged as a as a pro athlete but but i was doing the, the extra stuff for gastro and all yeah, that marketing yeah. and stuff and then that sort of segued into when um rob split off from gastro and did yeah, nash that's robbie nash yep so he right split so and did his nash thing right so we you know don montague and myself came over and i started doing what i was doing for gastro for nash okay and, um, yeah, so I, I kind of had this sort of du duality going at the time, which was fun. It was, yeah. it was, it was something different. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and then in this sort of scheme of things, as time went on, um, you know, kite surfing, well, I guess toe surfing actually came into the, into play before that. Yeah. So that was like 93 because you were pretty big in toe surfing. Did yeah. you get like the big wave of the year award one year for a toe in? Yeah, yeah. That was what, 96 or something? Or that actually didn't happen until 2004. Okay, so a lot yeah. later on that was. Yeah. But you were toe in right at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. It certainly seems like if something new comes along, you seem drawn to it. Are you one of these guys that likes learning something new and likes the challenge of it, like with the graphic design, with the 
learning to windsurf as soon as you saw it with oh toe surfing I'm going to get into that and now with surf falling and things do you see something new and obviously kite surfing when that happened do you see something and just feel I want to learn that I want to absorb it and get into it yeah yeah that's I would say that's a pretty accurate thing about me but um the other thing was that it you know like toe surfing wasn't something that we saw from a distance we were actually part of that the whole see you know genesis of it yeah um that's a whole nother long, long story. Yeah, yeah. We'll do that in part two <laughs> when we meet again and come to Maui. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it, it all sort of came down to the, the, the group of guys that I was hanging out with. Yeah. Um, which were all, you know, really creative and, 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 and top, mostly windsurfers yeah. at the time. And top athletes at their game. And obviously Robbie was building his company up and things like that. Yeah. yeah. And then, obviously, where did... Cabrina as a business come into it? When did you start doing your own thing? So I was working with Rob um, Furnash and um, he was just getting into the kite surfing. Um, I think Don Montague had, had um, developed the kites for, yeah. for Nash. And, so I and guess it was what, 99 or 98 maybe or a bit later perhaps because Robbie was a touch after the... Yeah, I want to say... Could have been a little earlier. That would have been more like maybe ninety seven, okay. ninety eight, yeah, perhaps. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's sort of when it began. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, um, I was really into the sport. Yeah. And there wasn't a lot of equipment around, so I started doing boards. Yeah. Under the Cabrina label. Yeah. So that was and the first sort of own cabrina brand product yeah, that was out there with the yeah. kite surfing boards and and then it became a bit difficult to have you know a board label working for nash and, yeah. and everything so i left nash and um i was gonna just do this this board thing and a mutual friend of mine um connected me with uh with neil pride okay and um at first i thought neil was just interested in doing the boards yeah um, on a larger scale, but of course, you know, he's got the, the factories and, and he had the distribution and he was interested in doing kites as well under the Cabrino label. So that's where we, a real kind of, yeah, Genesis that's when it really, moment. that, and, and, and that, by the time that came together, that was, uh, uh, 2000. Okay. Yeah. And that's when Cabrina, as we know it was Cabrina part of pride group. Exactly. Making kites and boards. Exactly. And, and package. And it was, uh, yeah, it was a um, really cool and, and um, fun time. I mean, you know, it's great for your your ego for about ten <laughs> minutes, and then it's like, okay, now, now we got to do the buckle job. down and yeah, you know, deliver. And and it, yeah, I mean, and we haven't stopped. I mean, it's, it's been, been a, a pretty incredible journey because for people that don't know, Cabrina is a kite surfing brand, and it's one of the biggest if not the biggest in the industry i think you know you're there's like three maybe two people now at the top and you're definitely one of them that's producing you know huge numbers of kites and boards and product going all around the world um it must be quite satisfying when you see kites in the sky and think that's got my name on it yeah I've had a part in that and yeah. making that person happy for sure i mean it, yeah i'm clearly proud of everything that um my team has done you know, we've we've got amazing people working for us, and and uh, you know, I can't take um, all the credit. I mean, really, just a fraction of what what's being put into it by by everyone. 
in the in the early days, you mentioned the team there. How many people started Cabrina when that in two thousand? Say, was it just you and a yeah, few it, people? It or? was myself, and I had a, a marketing assistant, and um, we had a designer doing the kites yep. uh, at the time. In fact, it was Bruno Legano okay. um, helped us get into the the business. So he did some designs for us and gave us the know how how to build these kites. And I was doing all the board designs at the time and, and doing all the marketing. It was really for as large of a company as we actually could could have potentially been. Um, you know, being in, inside of the Pride Group, we we were a real grassroots operation, real small. Yeah. And, and did you get much financial backing from the Pride Group, or was it kind of like you guys have to go and sell kites and make money, and we're not going to throw loads of cash at it, or was there always the backing of the Pride Group that kind of gave you the confidence? Yeah, there was there was um, sufficient backing yeah for sure and you know we we had a moment of truth right in the beginning that made it clear to me um, that these guys were in it yeah and so we rolled out our first uh, range of kites and um, I apologize for anybody who's listening that may may remember that time Um, we had these great designs and um, we actually got the wrong spec on, on this bladder material for the kites, right. and so when we rolled out, there was a lot of excitement. You know, big people, noise. Yeah, people were grabbing these kites, you know, snatching them up and going off on holiday, and then they were having the kites deflate on them, like after no, one dude. session. And we took us a little while to really figure out what what was wrong, what happened, and um, it came down to a pretty simple thing. Um, we were supposed to use um, polyether TPU, yeah. which is the material. Um, it's a real medical grade uh, TPU for the, the bladders, and they purchased polyester. Um, you know, and think, didn't, thinking, didn't tell you about it. Yeah, didn't <laughs> tell us about it, and and you know, thinking that oh, they're one and the same, but they weren't. You know, one um, is basically biodegradable. Yeah. You know? And so it's just degrading as soon as Yeah, as yeah. Soon as it and so, you know, what happened at the time was we were, you know, getting warranties left and right, like, immediately. And so we were, you know, FedExing replacement bladders all over the world at this just outrageous cost and supporting, you know, the customer. And and uh, this came at a, at a huge cost to the, the company. Um, of course, we eventually found out what the problem was and we, yeah. we, we fixed, fixed it. it. There was, you know, some immediate damage to the reputation that we had to then work climb really a hill on. to overcome. But that's tough when you're launching a company. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it said to me that, um, you know, the way that, it, you know, Neil just he he, I was losing sleep. I mean, literally, it was it was stressful tough, for sure. And he was a lot more cool about it and, and calm. And he, and he says, you know, we're just gonna do what it takes. And I was like, all right, I'm I'm with the right guys here. Yeah. They're going to look after yeah. you and see you through any rough times and help out where they yeah, can. Yeah, Rather than be, oh, you're on your own working out. And, you know, he had obviously had a lot of experience in, you know, issues that they've had, you know, maybe perhaps in Neil, Neil Pride windsurfing over the years. So, you know, he just sort of kept a cool head and just said, no, we'll get, we'll get we'll past We'll get over this. it. Yeah. It'll be fine. Yeah. And kiteboarding's changed a lot since those early days. Um, I know Cabrina was one of the brands that, in 2005 was it uh you know bought the switchblade the first bow kite to market um 
that must have been a pretty exciting time because kiteboarding, obviously, as you know, was quite hard before that point. You couldn't relaunch kites easily. You were crashing them and people were struggling to get them up. And I had a school at the time and you basically spent your whole time relaunching a kite for a student. And then with those bow kites, that was a, you know, a game changer. It just literally pull a line and up the kite goes. That must have been quite exciting to come across that with Bruno and yeah developing that kind of stuff knowing that you had something that was going to really change the face of kiteboarding forever yeah i i really felt it in in my gut that that was going to be a, a real game changer but it it was really surprising how how divided everyone was at the time even even internally i have to admit you know i was you know really sort of pushing this thing through and you know i had support um uh with the rest of my team when I say team, I'm talking this sort of in, internal development team. Yeah. Um, they they were they're like, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll make this. We'll see where where this goes. But at the same time, we had developed an entire range of traditional kites yeah. for that season, and we were just about. In fact, I think we had pushed the production button already, and and had started to make some of those kites. But I sat down for a conversation with Neil and he, he just said, you know, well, what do you think? And I said, man, I really think this is, this is it. Like, this is what, what's going to happen. Like, um, everything that I had been looking for until then, you know, a kite that depowers quickly, something that you have a lot more, you know, control over the, the, the power of the kite versus something that just sort of constantly pulled, um, is going to make it not just safer but it's gonna boost the performance like on the performance side of things and so it was sort of this double um you know reasons to 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 go after this and he says well why are we making these other kites and i said i'm not exactly sure you know maybe you know maybe as backup and he says well what do you want to do do you want to make these traditional kites and i said i don't know i think i want to go all in and and we did full gamble yeah and uh it paid off. It did, yeah. Because the market lapped it up, and I mean, these days there's people that learn to kite that didn't even don't even know anything other than a you know a bridle style kite that relaunches easily, has power control that you can, you know, control the power. They've just come down, done a kite surfing lesson. And it's easy. They're learning really quickly. Yeah, they wouldn't even know the, you know, the importance of those decisions and how that's changed. The yeah, I mean, th- I guess. there there's some some history behind that decision as well. I mean, because, you know, we we had lost our U.S. Uh, distributor. Um, he actually had a, a, a fatal um, crash okay. on, on launch. It was a really sad story, and uh, we had, and one of our reps as well. Um, and in both ca- in both cases, they were just just human error, you know, yeah. just just small mistakes. Yeah, that people make that you and, pay a big price for because yeah, and nobody should pay that that kind of ultimate price. And I just you know I was like, man, if we're going to be in this business, we can't we can't be in a sport that just doesn't allow people to just make a mistake like that. Yeah, you know. And so that was that was really the, the driving the, force behind looking for something that offered this yeah. extra control and safety. Yeah, yeah. And I I had a. Um, young daughter at the time and I was like you know what am I going to give her to ride you know do I want to take that chance you know and um so it it really it seemed like a big gamble but on the other hand it was a sound decision making process yeah, when you look at it like that for sure and I think people figure that out pretty 
pretty, pretty quickly. soon after. Yeah. 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 Well, now everyone's doing it, and kite surfing's a much safer place. Yeah. Yeah. And, and kites, you know. And I think everybody saw what happened after that in terms of the growth. Like, yeah. You know, it's not just safer, but it's some suddenly families and you know, um, kids and wives and you know people that maybe kind of were standing on the sidelines going i don't know this looks a bit sketchy <laughs> it went from this sort of extreme sport um label to just a sport yeah it's something people can engage in easily without thinking they might not come home from the beach <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> which is always a tough way when you're driving down and thinking, oh you know it's yeah. windy today this could be a, a sketchy one and yeah nowadays you go out with a five meter kite in 55 knots of wind and it's no drama yeah i mean it's still i mean you know it still can if you make mistakes you, know, you can put yourself in a bad place but um that's up to you yeah and you've got a bit of time and a bit of you've got to make those mistakes another thing i wanted to ask you about i know you're really big into your art and you mentioned um that you you know taught yourself to do graphic design and stuff have you always been into art or is that something that's come later in life or yeah it's it's always been a a sort of a thing i don't know i think if you're an artist it's kind of always there yeah, lurking in the background, sort of trying to always trying to push its way into your life. My my mom was an artist, and okay. So, <clears throat> so you grew up around painting. Yeah, and... she would go and paint on location and drag us kids around, and <laughs> you'd uh, be playing around in the foreground. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there there's some um, DNA maybe in in that, but uh, yeah, it's it's been something that I'm just super passionate about and part of the reason is because I'm so busy with everything that the art always kind of gets the the low priority yeah and so it's something that I'm always wanting to do yeah and because you don't have as much time as you maybe like so exactly it's like always driving you to want to do more of it yeah but but when I even by saying that I've I've put some some effort into it you know quite a bit over the years and um trying to cultivate my my thing and my style and I'm really into it now i mean i i have more time or i try to make more time yeah and uh yeah so i'm, I'm pretty into it i got a show coming up coming up this uh winter awesome yeah that's pretty cool yeah On Maui. yeah yeah brilliant so something uh i've got to get busy yeah get getting creating lots and lots and lots of stuff to put on the walls ready for the show yeah i guess that gives you a goal to sort of work towards you've got a date now that you're like right well i've got to take some time out for yeah that because otherwise yeah. The gallery won't be ready. I like it that way. It's, you know, stressful, but it, it brings out the best. Yeah. I think. Kind of a good driver. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. I'm going to do a lot of work and, you know, the, the, the cream will rise to the top, I guess. Hopefully, and I'll have a few pieces that I feel are worthy. And um, another thing I just want to touch base on quickly is you, you've got a passion for travel. You very kindly signed this amazing photo for me. Um, taken by James, actually. That's good. Um, but some of the trips that I've seen you guys do because obviously you know, working for a magazine you send stories and things like that I mean there's been some incredible adventures that you've been on over the years um, you know with things like the Cabrina Quest and stuff like that is there any one place that you've been to that really sticks out in your mind that you're constantly thinking oh I want to go back there that was so good yeah um, there's there's a few and they're both related or they're all related to the, the Quest okay. trips um, you know for, for kiteboarding especially kite surfing I have a thing for the um south pacific yep there's uh a, a ton of spots that are not really easy to get to but if you have a boat 
you can you get can. But and it's still a lot of effort. Yeah, it's still a lot of effort for sure. But when you're there and it's on, it's really like no other. Incredible. Yeah. So would this be the, the was it Out of Nowhere film that you guys did or Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that that would be where you're talking about. That's one of them. Yeah. We'll put a link to that in the yeah. description so the value of nowhere. The value of nowhere, yeah, that's the one. And um then uh, the Marshall Islands are a place there it's geographically not that far from Hawaii. Okay. Like you can take a four and a half hour flight to get to the main island. But then from there you need to either fly a, a little small plane or jump on a boat and sail. And and uh, you can get yourself into some pretty wild conditions. Yeah. When I say wild I mean just it's wild. Like Middle of nowhere, like yeah, no help for miles around. If anything goes wrong, you're like on your own, making sound decisions based on the fact that you exactly can't get medical attention. <laughs> exactly, and the the first trip I went on there, um, it was pretty interesting. I got an email from a boat captain. Um, at the time, it was the best Odyssey. Yeah, and uh, was that Gavin? Gavin. Yeah, Gavin yeah. McClurg. Yeah, he's a yeah, good guy. yeah, super guy. And so Gavin emailed me, and I'd never met him. He just said, hey, Pete, um, want to invite you on the boat. And uh, he goes, I, I've got a spot for you um, if you're interested, but you got to get to Majuro by Friday. And this is Wednesday. And so <laughs> I'm like, well, well i got to make a quick decision. I'm like, so I emailed him back right away. I said, hey, Gavin, where are we going? And he just he emailed me back a few words. He says, I can't tell you. <laughs> and I'm just like. I'm okay, in. I'm in. And he, Fantastic. It was a cool situation. He had got these coordinates from another captain and didn't want to, or I guess that was the deal, like couldn't couldn't share it, couldn't put it out there. And so I committed to it, not knowing where we were going. Although, of course, I was on Google Earth, and I'm like, oh, for sure, we're going here. This looks like a killer setup. I was completely wrong. Wow. And we ended up in a place that was just... It really amazing just mind-blowing yeah we landed on one island and um, the locals claim that um, they hadn't seen another uh, sort of sailboat just you know tourists like like us you know who had just sailed through there for three years no way yeah so they wow. you know there's a supply boat that comes and drops off stuff for them but they trade Copra for you know supplies and but yeah and really just completely off the grid awesome and the water is just alive like you stick your head underwater and there's just every kind of fish you can imagine you know from sharks to pelagics to we caught a probably a hundred pound ahi like a oh, yellow wow. fin tuna yeah like a hundred yards off um this island where we were surfing no and way I mean, so you could be sitting in the lineup and, and really anything could swim past you. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Wow. That must have been a fantastic experience. And then from, because that was when it was the best Odyssey, and then obviously mm. now it's the Cabrina Quest. Well, I think it still kind of is at the moment, or it was for a certain period of time. Did that kind of cement in your head that this is something I want to get behind? You know, I've got to yeah, be I mean, involved it was, in this more. Yeah, yeah, it was a life changing trip for me for sure and I, I wasn't much of a sailor and maybe not at all so that was really kind of my I sort of got thrown into it and um, I, I enjoyed it a lot and so when the Odyssey wrapped up uh, Gavin decided to do it again 
but this time instead of going around the world they wanted to just stay in the Pacific yeah for where five the good years. spots were and he wanted to know if we were interested in, in being a part of it so we paired up and did the the quest yeah and uh, that has just wrapped itself up yeah um, for five yeah. years yeah so you've yeah. had a few trips on that and yeah had some good times yeah it does it is an amazing boat I was lucky enough to go on it in 2008 I think when it was the best Odyssey still and uh, yeah we went to Los Rocos and it was just incredible like and Gavin and you know it's just an amazing boat an amazing experience it's fantastic um, and really good so yeah it was, uh, I can see why that would invoke such passion in you that you're just like wow this is something we've got to be involved in it's yeah really and, and again it sort of comes back to just kiteboarding in general like the sport that we're in and the kind of brand that we want to be you know we we're I, I feel like we're a very technical brand. I mean, we spend the, the lion's share of our time in development and R&D and, you know, putting these, these very technical products through um, production. But at the same time, I feel like it's not about that as much as it's about the sport. Yeah. And, and, and the lifestyle itself. And so for as much energy as we put into, you know, making these tech products, um, the way we want to use them is is something completely different yeah i want people to buy them for what they can do for them yeah as opposed to what what they have in them yeah so how it makes them feel and where to take them and yeah and and so trying to you know showcase that in in every way that we can you know is is something we like to do i think yeah so part of the marketing is like look this could take you here and you can do this with this product rather than hey it's got this inside and it's got that inside yeah. and going from that if you had to because you're, you're you know you are an exceedingly accomplished waterman you're good at towing you're good at paddling you're good at foiling you're good at kiting oh, yeah, windsurfing so. and everything like that and you've kind of reached an exceedingly high level in all those sports if you had to pick just one that you were only allowed to do for the rest of your days which one would it be well what's the what's the the one word that's part of every one of those sports surf yeah so you'd be surfing yeah everything i do is you know whether it's you know kite surfing um toe surfing windsurfing it's it's all part of surfing so yeah that's that to me is at the the core the core yeah that's the center that's of what it. i want to do is i want to surf like ride waves any way i can and if you could pick one spot anywhere in the world to go and surf because that's the one sport you're allowed to do now Wow. And you can go tomorrow, but time doesn't matter. You've got a time machine to get you there. Which spot would you choose and why? Wow. I hadn't thought about that. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't got a plane ticket for you, don't worry. (laughs) Can I pick more than one? (laughs) You can pick two. I'll let you go for two. (laughs) This could get expensive if I was buying the plane tickets. Man. There must be so many good spots that you've ridden over the years. This is probably why it's such a tough question, because it's like, how do you... You know what I would say? I I would probably say Fiji and a wave like uh, Cloudbreak, maybe. Okay. <clears throat> good I'll, choice. I'll tell you why. I mean, yeah, I mean, you see it in photos, it looks perfect. Yeah. But part of the thing is that it's not perfect. Um, it's It's a pretty quirky wave at times, you know? And if... You know, it's kind of like if someone asks you if you um, uh, wanted to eat a type of food, um, you probably, you know, for the rest of your life, yep. one type of food for the rest of your life, 
you probably want to eat something that in some Can some taste way a bit different would taste a bit different day by day. Otherwise, you get <laughs> you completely get, bored yeah. of it. Okay. So cloud break, you know, on on any given day, kind of has these different moods to it. So um, it throws up some different challenges and different conditions. Yeah, it can be super playful um, and it fun. You it can be scary. It can be, it can be all of that. Yeah. So yeah, I would say cloud break. Wow. It'd be challenging for sure. So that's it. Surfing cloud break for the rest of your days, Pete. Yeah. Not a bad way to end it. <laughs> Thanks for that, Pete. That's been a really insightful conversation. I've really enjoyed that. You know, yeah, I've learned some things there that, that I didn't know. Um, so it was nice to talk about some of the windsurfing stuff from back in the day because I was an avid windsurfer back then. So, yeah, that was really great. I think that's a, a nice point to end it on. So thanks, Pete, for giving me the time and melting in the boiling hot van and struggling with your European flu. Cheers. There we have it. Episode five is done and dusted. It was great to chat to Pete, and I really enjoyed some of his stories and hearing about his experiences from around the world. If you enjoyed the last 50 minutes, then please give this podcast a rating on iTunes or wherever you're tuning in. Share it with your friends on social media, or maybe even tell them about it in real life down the pub. I'll be back next week with another episode, so be sure to tune in then. You've been listening to Intriguing Beings with me, Rue Chater.